Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully excited about today. It's Thursday, so Guide Talk is going to be happening here in just a minute. And then Dr. Andy Scudiga will be joining me as well. That's the plan for today. And as you know, I love your questions. I love the uh, things you send Guide Talk so we can talk about it. And you can text me right now, 877-933-2484, Eight four, the power panel is formulating. We've got uh, pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish, and Pastor Justin Jepson, and I believe later in the hour, Dr. Peter Kapsner is going to be joining us from his vacation spot in Michigan. He's in his last couple of days with his family on vacation, but he couldn't resist coming in for a little while. So I think he's going to be joining us as well. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Good Bill. With you, Bill. Justin, how hey, are you? Great to be back, Bill. Uh, Feeling much, much better, thankfully. I, so I, was very, for your I was very worried about young Justin Jepson. He had I, a fever, and I recommended did he, have he the COVID thing. No, he didn't. But he got tested for it. I recommended oh, he put leeches tested. on his forehead, yep. and that worked. <laughs> that, that worked yeah. from, from that off the grid underground bait and tackle shop. Yes, from yes, where, that's where I get so. my leeches. Yeah, we yep. we stay off the grid. Anyway, I'm glad you're feeling better. And you did you. you did test uh, negative for COVID, didn't you? I did test negative, so I'm in the free and clear. Well, who knows? I mean, they say uh, right. you know there's a 30 percent chance that it's a false negative, but I I've, I'm past my 10 days of of uh, quarantining, past my original onset of my symptoms, so I'm I'm in the clear. That is wonderful. You bet. All right, mm-hmm. let's. Uh, I want to again invite any listener that wants us to talk about a concern or issue you have. Eight seven seven ninety three faith. Um, I want to start with, um, what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love God? I mean, obviously it re- requires knowing Him, but, um, you know, understanding God's love, I think, is a struggle for many. Well, Jesus said, uh, you know, all will know you're my disciples if you do what I command you to do. And without getting legalistic, there's always that tension between the emotion of love, the, the psychological aspect of love, and the doing of it. And you can't dismiss any of them. They all have to be together. The problem is most of us are not good at the doing. We're good at the hearing, and we'll agree with it. But does that translate into the way we treat our spouse, and the way we treat other people, and the way we respond to money? For some, yes. For some, no. And all of us have those uh, kind of, uh, what like call, closets in our life that we have to deal with, whatever that brokenness may be. But to really love the Lord... Uh, I look at what Jesus says, and he says, say, do what I command. Yep. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the yeah. thing is, you can keep the commandments without loving God. Sure can. You know, here, here's a story yeah. I heard or read. Here's a lady that has a horrible husband. And at 7 o'clock in the morning, he hands her a list of everything he wants her to do that day. And it's a miserable marriage. Finally, mercifully, he dies. <laughs> and she Is this gets a, a joke, by the way? Yeah, no, it's not a joke. Okay. <laughs> it's an old sermon illustration. And, and mercifully, he dies. She gets a new husband. 
who's a wonderful husband. She loves her new husband. He loves her. They have a wonderful marriage. And one day she's cleaning out the attic and she comes across an old list from her old husband. And she looks at the list and she realizes all the stuff her old husband used to bark at her to do, she's doing unconsciously out of love for the new husband. Mm. And I think that's the key is when I spend time with the Lord, understand he forgives my sins, all the great stuff he does for me, then I want to obey him. But if I'm afraid that God's like a barking husband who's out out to make me miserable, then okay, I'll do it, but don't ask me to like it. Mm -hmm. So I think the key is the relationship with Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. uh, that's so good, and I uh, I missed you, brothers. This was good to be back. But let me. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, we miss you too. I, we miss you too, I love, Justin. I love the. I mean, the way that the Bible qualifies and specifies the way that what does it mean to love God? I love that He says, you know, He doesn't just say love God. He says love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and then you know, in some verse, in some parts of the Scripture, and, and all of your strength. Which you know, I think it it's an all-encompassing thing. So it's not only what you do, but it's why you do it, and it's how you do it, and it's when you do it. And um, and, and, it, and it's that reality that it's meant to uh, truly be a commitment of the whole person, a, a giving of self to one another. And I think, you know, I, I think loving God really, in, in a lot of ways, scripturally speaking, is synonymous with worshiping God. And I think it's, you know, that uh, that old Middle English word, worth-ship, whatever we ascribe or give ultimate worth to, is what we worship. But ultimately, we're going to worship what we, you know, to a certain degree, we're going to give worth to what we love. So to love God means that we give Him the ultimate worth above and beyond everything else in our, in our lives. Mm. Okay, talk about the difference between obedience and compliance. I think, Tom Brock, you had sort of um, picked up on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I, I mean, don't know. Okay. Well, compliance is you do it to get along. You do it so mm-hmm. that you don't get in trouble. Yeah. You do it so that you look good. Uh, obedience and a lot is of, different, isn't it? Obedience is different. Obedience yeah. comes from the heart. Yes. Because you the want to do it. You want to do it because you're pleasing somebody else. And because I want to mm-hmm. please Jesus, I do it from the heart. Now, I comply when I've got to get it done and get it out of the way and make somebody else feel good about it. So can I ask you, if, if somebody asks you, do you love God, what do you say? How, do you, how does that question make you feel? <laughs> well, do, you, do you love God? I do, and I put him first, and I think I would come out with that. I want God to be number one in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to love God is to not only to desire him and to want his and yearn for his righteousness, his word, and his grace. Does it, I mean... I, all right, I, that's what I—that's our aspiration. I want to yeah. love God with all my heart. Right, but do I love God with that's all my heart? That's a good heart? question, Tom. That's why you, I brought it up. You right. know, if if you go to the—if <laughs> you're a Lutheran like I am, we open the service confessing our sins, and here's the way it goes: God, I confess I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. Uh, therefore, you know, forgive me through the the bitter death of Christ, etc. Yep. So, I, you know, I do love God to a degree. But isn't it true there's still, even as a believer, part of me that hates God and doesn't want him to run my life, the old flesh that I have to kill every day? I mean, that thing, I think, is still in me, and I have to put it to death. Well, Luther said we've got to put the yeah. old man to death every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think what he meant by old man is that we still want to be God. Mm-hmm. That's part of our problem. We inherited it from Adam and Eve, that, yeah. that evil sin yeah. nature. But what it comes down to is, is if I truly love the Lord, uh, 
Yep. It's going to begin to show up when push comes to shove. It is. You know, you and mm-hmm. I can say how much we love Jesus. Right. It's another matter if somebody literally says, hey, if you pronounce Jesus' name, you're going to die, which many of our mm-hmm. brothers and sisters have faced in Asia and elsewhere. Those people, most of them say, yes, they will stand up for Jesus. To me, that's somebody that really loves right. the Lord. I think mm-hmm. I would do that, but I don't know that I would do that, but that's my ultimate goal. If, if you yep. truly love God... You wouldn't sin anymore, would you? I mean, if if I perfectly love God, I sure. wouldn't sin. And so I think we yeah. love Christians. We love God, but it's an imperfect love that won't be perfect till heaven, because right. we're still in these imperfect well, bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's why I love. I mean, at least I love God. We're not talking about a destination that I've arrived. We're talking about a a True. relationship that's yeah. in the process of maturing and growing. That's our sanctification and. You know, going back to the original question, I think the the difference between obedience and compliance, I think I would simplify it in saying that, you know, compliance is I have to do this, whereas obedience is I get to do this. Now, I, I yes, at the at the true level that I want to do this, but to be honest, right, obedience isn't necessarily always doing what I want to do. So in the same way that if I wake up in the morning and, you know, I could say I have to read my Bible, compliance, you know. Um, I may not want to read my Bible. I'll reckon. I'll be honest, but I, but I still get to. I still right. have the ability to. I've been given the grace that has enabled me to take a step of action and take personal responsibility for, you know, the decisions that I make and the ramifications of those. Now, I've never spent time reading Scripture where afterwards I thought, hmm, I wish I would have done something else. <laughs> you know, I went into it maybe not wanting to do it, but as I do it, because I get to do it, I'm obeying God. Um, that that love, which again isn't characterized as we know by emotions or a feeling, it involves it, but it isn't driven by it always. That 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 part of me continuing being shaped and transformed through the obedience, because ultimately I love God, in my in my love for Him, um, that it moves from I get to to include I want to and I want to do it more. I have a true story. If you if we want to do true confessions, let me do this one. I didn't understand what this meant. I don't want to do we... true confession. Well, yeah, Tom, you'd be okay. You're, okay. you're, you're alone on this side but of the parish. Okay. But <laughs> I, in one of my congregations, um, I came face-to-face with this reality. How much do I really love Jesus? What it came down to is uh, I was at this congregation, been there a number of years, and one day I didn't have a secretary at that point. I was still a small congregation. A woman came in who had come in for counseling before, an attractive young woman, uh, whatever. And as I'm walking out to the door, she literally throws her arms around me, tells me she's loved me since the day I walked in the door. And that if I'm willing to leave my wife, she will she will leave her husband. And she desired me. And, you know, I'll be honest. Let's be real blunt. It felt good. Mm. But I was not going to disappoint Jesus. Now, that's funny. I didn't think about my wife. I thought, I do not want to give up preaching the gospel because this is what I was made for and born for. Therefore, I said, I want to remember taking her arms around my neck, taking them off and backing her up and telling her, I cannot love you that way. I can love you as a sister in Christ, but I cannot love you that way. And for me, it wasn't as though I planned it. It's because at that moment, suddenly the two loves came into my life and my, my human desire at that moment, was overridden by my desire to serve the Lord. And, you know, that your story reminds me of, I'm, I'm preaching this, actually. I'm working on a sermon. You're preaching my story? I am, no. <laughs> but honestly, you know, who does it remind me of is when Potiphar's wife grabs hold of Joseph, oh, yeah. and he says, not how can I do this and sin against Potiphar? He says, 
how can I do this and sin against God? That's what came to my mind. Yeah. It did on the spot. It wasn't. I hadn't thought it through. I wasn't logical with it. It just came. And then think of this. David kills Uriah, steals his wife, and commits adultery with Bathsheba. Finally, he feels guilty and writes the 51st Psalm where he writes, A God against thee and thee only Only I have sinned. Not that he didn't sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, but his ultimate, every time we sin, if you have sex outside of marriage, you're sinning against the person you're having sex with, but your ultimate sin is always against God. It's the Lord. Mm -hmm. Uh, Listener uh, Justin said, when I tell my kids to do something and they say, okay, daddy, or when they say, fine, I'll do it with an eye roll. I can totally tell the difference <laughs> between compliance and yeah, obedience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's like what Justin said about about um, Bible reading. Same about prayer. I can go go to prayer with the attitude, "Okay, I'm going to put my time in," or I can get on my knees and say, "And I just have to say this, God, thank you. I have the greatest privilege on earth. I get to talk to the Creator of the universe. No kidding. Most people in the world don't even know about doing this, and I have all your resources." At my fingertips, God, thank you for this huge, incredible privilege. Yeah. And then you go into prayer. <laughs> you, you guys are above average interesting today. Let me take a little break. More guide talk ahead. Let me know what your questions or issues are. talk and also if you uh, want to participate in the survey regarding the, uh, the afternoons with Bill Arnold show all you have to do is text the word survey and you will get uh, the survey to fill out I don't think it takes more than two three hours what is it what does it take Rebecca do you know <laughs> I was gonna say we try to keep it really short it's like five but, questions or something but you do get to rank your favorite guests yeah we have like a list of about 20 guests that are regulars and I think you clowns are on it and all of the men oh in this my. room are yeah. on it so I think yeah. So, so I'm not yeah. saying it's a competition, but yeah. but if you guys aren't it, it asked is back, for, it is for Tom. It is being counted. Tom and I are rather competitive. This could be problematic. If you guys aren't asked Buddha, back next Buddha week, you'll know why. Yep. So anyway, yeah, text the word survey uh, to eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four, and I think we're giving away an Amazon gift card. Uh, we are? We're gonna, you know, whoever does the survey, you're in the drawing for it, and then if you win it, they get to. Well, what what if you're the guy that they like the best? Do you, <laughs> well, do you get that Brock, too? You gotta Come give on. it a rest. Yeah. Come on. Well, you can go on and fill it out yourself and say <laughs> how much dimes. you like yourself. <laughs> you're docking points for yourself, Tom. <laughs> All right, I got questions pouring in, so we're going to get back to the business at hand here, if you don't mind. Um, here's a question. Um, let's see. Um, okay, uh, we're talking about God predestines who will be saved, but also predestines the, the means to which they are saved, so we are to pray for others' salvation. Okay, we're supposed to pray mm-hmm. for others' salvation. Mm-hmm. And this uh, listener said, I heard one of your panel mention that he prays for his sister. My question is, why would God make it so difficult? If you're praying for someone's salvation, why would God not fill them with the Spirit? Well, I, that was probably talking about my sister probably, a few weeks yeah. ago. And, and you know, I have, a, I have three pages at home of lists of people starting when I was like 20 years old that I've been praying for their salvation. 
And I have prayed that list so many times, and I'm still believing God's going to save them before they die. But on the other hand, I've kind of come to the point where, okay, God, I believe you're going to save my sister and my brother and all these people. I'm just trusting you're going to do it. I have come to the point where I've kind of said, okay, Lord, but ultimately you're God. And then you leave it at that. And why does God make it difficult? Why doesn't Why doesn't he save these people quickly? I don't know the answer to that. And, you know, the, the ways of the Lord are not our ways. And... Uh, but you just keep praying. Well, you know, if knowing the truth meant doing the truth, then nobody would smoke, nobody would drink, nobody would get overweight. You know, we aren't that kind of people. And it's the same thing with the spiritual reality. I personally have experienced, and I've led a lot of people to Christ, like you have, Tom. It's part of our fam- framework. The reality is I've watched some people go through 10 and 15 spiritual awakenings. Mm-hmm. In other words, they were spiritually awakened. They will get all excited about Jesus, and then they'll drift back into their old lifestyle. And then six months later, they'll get spiritually awakened again. And every single time, I've come to the conclusion, it's a genuine awakening. It is the Lord putting his finger on their heart and pushing and prodding them. Now, I don't believe people only get one spiritual awakening. I believe we get multiple awakenings, and whether we respond to that or not is a different matter. And so I'm thankful when people do respond. Yeah, yeah, I, that is a really, it's a really hard question, um, and, and I think it's while it's certainly surrounded with a lot of mystery, um, I think one of the things that the Bible makes so apparently clear is that we are waging not against flesh and blood, but we have a spiritual enemy. And so, you know, the the parable of the four different soils and the, the parable of the sower and the seed come to mind, and and just you know, I, I think the you know, Jesus speaking to an agrarian culture and recognizing the process of, of what it took to bring forth fruit. Um, you know, there was the the labor of tilling the soil and planting the seed and tending to it and watering and, and waiting for it to grow. And knowing that he can't produce the growth, but we can uh, essentially position the environment around it to so that it, it, it is able to go and God, God bringing the growth. And I, I think sometimes prayer can be like that. A prayer goes through multiple seasons. Sometimes in prayer, we're maybe tilling up the soil. Uh, sometimes prayer is, is, is opening. God is using that to open up someone's heart to receive the word. Um, maybe that produces an awakening, several awakenings. Ultimately, God's sovereign over the whole process um, in terms of bringing someone to salvation because he's the Savior. But yet, um, he He involves us in the process. And, and I, what I've learned, too, is that I think— some of the essence of prayer isn't just about God, you know, doing something or something, getting something done or changing a circumstance, but the way that even when I pray for somebody else's salvation, the way that that changes me and the way that 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 way that it changes my perspective of the way that I not only view that person I'm praying for, but people that are lost in general and people that are uh, all around me every single day. And so, I mean, but yet at the same time, we have a we have an enemy of our souls that the accuser with Satan himself that that is adamantly against us and will combat everything that that we're doing uh, and seeking to partner with the Lord and accomplishing. But yet, his purpose will ultimately, in the end, prevail. So whether that's someone that accepting Christ on their deathbed, or whether that we pray once and someone says yes to Jesus and it's genuine and it's real, 
and they produce fruit. And think, everywhere in between. So. I think being grie- uh, grieved in our hearts for our unsaved loved ones is biblical. Paul says, "I Paul, who said, rejoice in the Lord always, also wrote, I have unceasing grease, grief in my heart for my Jewish brethren mm-hmm. because they have not converted. And so, you know, I, th- I have the joy of the Lord, but when I think of, think of certain people and pray for certain people, I get grieved. And But that grief is part of, uh, Paul had it. So I think if you're grieved that your daughter or your son is walking away from the Lord, you, you can have still the joy of the Lord, even in the midst of the grief. There are people I prayed for for 40 years, people that I've known from school, uh, grew up with, whatever. I, I won't tell you I pray for them every day, but I would say a couple times a week I spend time praying for their salvation. And I remember a couple of years ago being really discouraged because several of them, there was no spiritual awakening. There was no change. I went to my class reunion, and they were just as much a pain in the neck yeah. now as they were then. Yeah. But I remember as I was praying about that, and I, I finally said, Lord, why should I even bother to pray? You know, nothing's happening here. And, and in, I can't say that I heard a direct voice, but here's the impression I got. I've given you the privilege to pray for the people that I'm going to touch and change. And somehow we think that should be a momentary event. We're in, our, in this case, some of them are 40 years of praying for them. So if you're still in your heart to pray for somebody after all this time and you're getting discouraged, uh, you've been called to pray. The Lord has given you a special place, and just keep praying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I, I will give up praying when I die. Can I give you a quote from a guy that I was in a Bible study with for a long time? He's gone to be home with the Lord. His name was Walt Hendrickson, and here's his quote. God makes you an incredible offer. You can give your life in exchange for the same thing for which Jesus spent his life. People. Mm. People last forever. For good or bad, they are eternal. Mm -hmm. Spend your life helping them prepare for eternity. Don't give your life to mediocrity. Life is too short and the issues of eternity too significant. And, you know, Bill, what I have been, maybe for two years now, the prayer that I pray almost every day is, Lord, please, between today and the end of time, save the most number of lost people mm-hmm. and keep the saved people saved. And I just, and I pray that regularly. And that's my main prayer. God, make sure between today and the end of time, you save the most number of lost people and keep them saved. What, what do you mean keep them saved? And Once saved, be, always saved, right? <laughs> we could have a whole show on that. <laughs> yeah. but, but, well, but I'm asking the Lord to keep them saved. So there you go. So okay. it's kind of in line with that. Right. But, the, but the thought is, <laughs> no, seriously, if I, the reason I pray that is because I need to remember everybody dies and goes to heaven or hell for all eternity. All eternity. And me praying yep. that prayer regularly helps me remember that mm-hmm. and helps me put that above, you know, well, when, did, when does Jesus lose his concern for somebody? When does Jesus stop wanting them to be saved? And I think what I've learned over the years is that I don't save anybody. Even my prayers are not out there saving them. What my prayers do align me with what Jesus is doing in their life and what he wants to do, and I'd rather be on his team than on the devil's team. Yeah. All right, I got a great comment from a listener. I've been realizing how thankful I am for the gift of remembrance I obviously don't like remembering my past sins, but I love that God reminds us of his goodness so that we have a storehouse of things to thank him for. Yeah. Mm. All right. I'm at lots more time for more questions or comments. 877-933-2484. And you can also text the word survey if you want to fill out a survey regarding not this particular hour, but the show in general. Vote for me. Oh, boy. (laughs) That was me doing ventriloquism. (laughs) All right. We'll take a short break and be right back.
Thank you for joining me today. I'm so glad uh, to have so many great questions coming in from so many smart listeners. We are enjoying uh, Guy Talk. We've got uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner has just joined the team. Peter, welcome. Hey, guys. It's, hey, uh, Peter. Good to hear your voice. Yeah. I heard a little bit about the survey results and uh, Tom's. I'm sorry I'm running a little late. Based on your ongoing and full-throated endorsement of the LCA, I just got done signing up with the church. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, Peter, uh, we were talking about the survey, and these guys are, like, competing to see who's going to get the highest ranking, and the answer is... Uh, do, do we have any initial results in yet? I, mean, I don't you think know, so. I, and we don't. I'm, I'm really curious to see where this thing falls. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Just uh, text the word survey to 877-933-2484. I think you fill out four or five questions. It takes uh, just a couple of minutes, and then you're in the drawing for an Amazon gift card. Vote for um, me. Yeah, vote for Tom. There we go. <laughs> All right. A whole bunch of questions coming in. The uh, question is, uh, what does poor in spirit mean? Peter, you're the newcomer to the group. Do you want to tackle that one? <laughs> I go first? Yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I assume that's the reference to Matthew five with the first of the Beatitudes, and, it is. and my best understanding of that is uh, it's it's sort of the idea of Jesus saying, "Blessed are those who know they don't have what it takes," um, or "Blessed are those that know that 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 can't stand on their own and within their good works and within their abilities and, and all of that." Because when you, when you realize that, uh, you're moved then towards humility and bending your knee and submission, and it's a pretty awesome gift that then is promised to, to people that get to that point where they realize they really just don't have what it takes. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And it's the idea that God's mm-hmm. kingdom begins to really unfold in its majesty in people's lives and, it, and its power and its uh, possibility. And I don't mean earthly possibility. I mean the kind of possibility that only the kingdom holds, which is very different than the possibilities of this world. But your only access to it is actually a little counterintuitive. It isn't how many degrees you have after your name or how many Bible verses you know, and, and uh, all of those things might be important. But the entrance into God's kingdom is always through the, the, it's the road of humility where you know you don't have what it takes. Awesome. I, I think that also is true to, to realize that we're, we're glad we have all, all four Gospels because I think Matthew says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the, uh, they shall inherit, uh, no, theirs is the kingdom of God. But if you read Ma- uh, Luke, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And, you know, if you were just reading, I think I've got this right, Matthew, you think, well, it's good to be poor. Well, what Jesus meant was the poor in spirit, the humble, the people that know that they need a, a Savior. So it's good we got all four Gospels to put alongside okay. each other. Well, that's the one verse that's been well, so misused by our culture, because Christianity, it, the emphasis is mm-hmm. on everything on the poor. Well, I, I want to serve the poor. You serve the poor, Tom. I think all of us have. But the issue is not simply being financially poor. It's being spiritually poor. And I looked at the Greek word for the fun of it. It means someone who literally is a beggar. So to be poor in spirit is someone who is a beggar in spirit. That is, you bring nothing, absolutely nothing, and you give it all, you raise your hands up all to the giver who has it. Mm-hmm. And even your spirit is enough. You need the spirit from those that give. And that, yeah. you know the definition of evangelism? Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it's Luke that says yeah. poor in spirit, and Matthew says, or Luke that says poor, Matthew says poor in spirit. Oops. Poor in spirit. Oops. Oops. Yeah. Yep. Backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you you, know, you made that mistake on survey day. Vote for me anyway. That certainly helps. Well, I I think uh, yeah, and 
but when you, when you ask yourself the question, you know, why is the, the difference there? You know, and, and I think you know, one of the things to consider is when you look at who the Gospels are written to and who were the intended audience. And for Matthew writing to primarily a Jewish audience, you know, and when you look at um, his case of saying that, you know, Jesus says, is, is, the, is the Messiah, is the long foretold one that, that, that has come. He's the fulfillment of all the prophecies um, in the Hebrew scriptures. And, you know, for them to, see, to be poor in spirit, um, you, you look at who, who Jesus invited into his life. And, I mean, even the disciples that he, he had gathered around him um, when he was at, you know, at, at a wealthy Pharisee's home, right, who was definitely not poor by any means, but it was those who were poor in spirit that he gave direct access to and a seat at the yeah. table with him. And primarily, there were the ones that, as already been said, the ones that they knew that they were sick and they needed a physician, the ones they knew that they had had sin and they needed a savior, the ones that they recognized their utter dependence and need for Jesus, um, that, that poverty of spirit. But yet he also encountered very wealthy, wealthy materially-wise, Gentiles, and ones of high status that recognize that still have that same poverty of spirit. So poverty of spirit, it, it can be something that is an attitude maintained regardless of what is in your checking account. And so, but I, but I think part of, you know, Matthew's reason of writing to the Jewish audience saying, hey, look, you, you've been the ones that have had the prophecies. You've been the ones that have, that have the law, but because you've been blessed in all this way, like you really, you need to recognize that there's, there's a poverty of spirit that you still have that I think that they had forgotten that Matthew was trying to help write to help them uncover so they could recognize Jesus as the Messiah that they were waiting for. Yeah, both Matthew and Luke, it is the same Greek word for poor that we translate poor, and it means someone who begs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, what I love about that, too, is that the word blessed there uh, also could be translated and is translated at times as happy are those. And mm-hmm. when, when you think about the idea, gosh, I, I could actually be happy to be poor in spirit and how that kind of happiness contrasts with with the pursuit of happiness that we often have in our western cultures it's it it, again i'll I'll use the word counterintuitive it's very jesus's kingdom is almost always upside down from the kingdoms of this world in terms of how things work and and when you think about it when when you finally are willing to admit that that beggar that poverty of the spirit the the fact that you don't have what it takes there's a happiness because that happiness is born out of a freedom of just simply living in the truth and then from that place of truth that you that we don't have what it takes, amazingly enough, God's kingdom begins to unfold in front of us. I mean, how could you not be happier than to be living in the beauty and wonder of God's kingdom in a, in a broken and fallen and difficult world? Uh, and, and that's that place of happiness. And that's such a different kind of happiness than the invitations around us typically. Great answer. Hey, Peter, you're sounding just a little muffled. I don't know if you're having a problem with your oh. phone, but anyway, just wanted to give you a heads up. Here's another question. Uh, this came, comes in from Terry, my wingman. He goes, I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but my question is this. In Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent tempts Adam and Eve, why didn't at least one of them, when being offered the fruit from the tree of knowledge, say, hold on a second, and run over to the tree of life, eat some of it, and then come back and eat of the tree of knowledge? That way, they have all their bases covered. I mean, if you're going to disobey the one and only true God, wouldn't you think about it long and hard? <laughs> Well, I don't see that in life. People who disobey the Lord, including myself, are the most arrogant people on the face of the earth. We think we already know. Why do we need to consult the Lord? Because we already know. And I think Adam and Eve reached that point where their rebellion, and I always grew up that Adam and Eve fell. I thought there was a big hole in the ground they fell into. But it was really a rebellion against the Lord. And the rebellion was, who's going to be God? 
and they wanted to be God. And I think whenever we reach that in a relationship or we do that with the Lord himself, when we want to be God, we want to have the final word. We want everybody to obey us. Arrogance gets in the way and we forget how wrong we can be. I wish they would have thought it through. Been easier for us. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that someone understand the question right. I mean, it's kind of a sense. Okay, if I'm if I'm going to sin against the God, I'm really going to make a count, and I'm going to try to get as much the much of this out of you know as I can. I'm going to do break everything rather than just one. But I think that's the that's not really the nature of of sin. I think that you know, Satan always seems to kind of tempt us just to take that next step, mm-hmm. you know, before jumping off a cliff. You know, it's not so much take this huge leap, but it's just take this small little step, and we don't fully realize, you know, how much sin will overpromise and yet underdeliver, and will always take us farther than we want it to go. But it's usually, it's a, it's a process, you know, and that first step, that was a that was the step of the destructive process that brought upon the original sin, that we know from there, it wasn't just a bunch of people eating fruit they shouldn't eat. I mean, they were starting to kill each other in the next chapter, and they were, you know, so it, it continued to progress from there. So I think that tends to be the biblical revelation of the nature of sin is that, you know, people aren't thinking, really, and that's why they sin. You know, they just see what's right there in front of them, and they take, give into temptation and take that one step without realizing that it could cost them and does cost them their very lives. Great observation, Justin. All right, here's another question from a listener. Uh, if our hearts are deceitful above all else, then how can I know what my motives are? How can I know if I truly love God, if I could deceive myself and my heart could deceive me? I don't want to be deceived, and I want to know that I love God and that I'm pleasing Him, but I feel so strongly in uneasiness about this. Mm. I think... I think I, I, go, well, I'm just thinking that if you... If you think like that too much, it'll drive you crazy. Because our, our motives are always tainted with sin. And my motives are never 100% pure. Uh, and it is true, uh, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? What is that, Jeremiah? But it also says, I will take out of you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a new heart. So yeah, I've got this evil heart, but I've also got a new heart put into me by the Holy Spirit which will help me understand when I'm being deceived by my old heart, maybe. So I, I just think we can't, if we look too much at, are my motives good? And am I, am I doing this for the right reason? Well, you know, it, it, I, I think that'll drive you crazy. Just, just do the will of the Lord, and even if your motives stink, do it anyway. Because our motives are always mixed with, with doubt. I think there is a solution. And, and I think it's in midway between what you're talking about. I was on a, a conference call last night with a bunch of Christians talking about starting house churches and why house churches are probably the most effective tool in the long run more than the big church where you've got a couple thousand people. The reason is in the house church you can't escape. You can't hide from one another. You can't go do something or leave your spouse without the other ones knowing it. In other words, there's a high accountability in a small group where in the local church, there's a low accountability. People don't even know you're there some Sundays. And I think that when we talk about this, um, this accountability thing, that's where the, the church is so important. And we don't understand that because I don't understand my own motivation. But, Tom, how many times were you and I working together? And you would ask me, why are you doing that? And I had to stop and think and say, well, I was thinking this over here. Well, why didn't you think about this over here? Oh, wait a minute. I was doing that to you. That's how it worked out. But the point, the point was yeah. I needed somebody on the outside to yeah. look at me objectively yeah. and help me understand my own motivation. 
Because even now, after all these years of walking with the Lord, I can fool myself real easy. Exactly. And so I need my brothers and sisters in Christ to look at me and say, You've what's wrong de- with you? Yeah, you're being deceived. <laughs> yeah. And, and we, if that's why uh, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, yes. and hold each other accountable. Iron sharpens iron. And if you don't have anybody in your life that you've given permission to tell you the truth, you know, please set me straight when I'm going astray. We all need somebody like that in uh, our of life. Of course. That's right. Yeah, because that, that was exactly the point. I was. You guys said so well. I think deception really thrives in isolation. And so I think if, you know, even if this listener asking this question, who are you uh, dialoguing about? If it's good to bring it up to Guy Talk, I love talking about it. And hopefully that our conversation is helpful. But we all need somebody in our life, you know, like you just mentioned the, to the Tom to Tom, you know, that are you, you're able, you're close enough to be able to see blind spots in each other's lives and to be able to lovingly bring that to the front and maybe to help bring what's conscious, what's unconscious conscious and to, to dialogue about that in a, in a way that is, you know, marked by authentic authenticity and vulnerability. Um, so that, you know, and, and to speak affirmation into one another's lives that I think that that is so true and speaking the truth and love to one another that helps build each other up. Yeah, I don't know if my connection's any better uh, now, Bill. I'm it up is here better. It's way better. Stadium border. Okay, great. Yeah, no, I just concur with the guys, especially that what Justin said about the deception and isolation. And and can I add that the, you know the the text, the biblical text, invites us in the midst of our concern about the deception of our heart to uh, to invite God into the middle of it and say, "Search me and and know me and and uh, see if there's any wrong spirit in me." Kind of idea with God, and God really does do that that revelatory work with us. It's amazing to me how often uh, I'll be in the midst of a decision or a conversation or just something going on in my life and, uh, and just ask God to search me. It's, it's not always my favorite thing to do because it, he does tend to reveal through the refining fire of his spirit a bit uh, of the impure motivations and the deceptions that you're living in. So the combination of being with trusted people and the combination of, of, da- of a daily prayer, just saying, God, search me and know me. And, uh, and, and help me see my heart uh, in, in the places that it's deceived, the places where you're working within it, and, uh, and work together towards that, which is true. I, there's a lot of tools for people that are concerned about the deception. And, and I'm with Tom Brock in saying that you can kind of drive yourself nuts, or you can sort of just say, you know what, I know that I'm, I'm fallen. I know that I'm broken. Uh, I know that I'm poor in spirit, but uh, I'm going to be with my brothers and sisters in faith and ask God to work within me uh, so that uh, there is a power that is greater than the power of the deception of our heart. Uh, and that's the power of the Spirit at work within and through us. And you know what? I, I used to have a buddy who once a week we'd have fellowship, and then we'd have 10 minutes of truth where he had permission to tell me what he saw in me that was good and to compliment me, but he also had permission to tell me where he thought I needed work. And I, I, again, I just we, we every Christian needs somebody like that in their lives because, uh, again, we don't see ourselves clearly. All right, let me take a little break. We'll have more guy talk after uh, the break. And if you have a question or an issue or a comment, we'd love to hear any of the above. 
Here's an interesting question. I might direct this one towards young Peter Kapsner. My best friends are my grandparents and parents, which means that my best friends are at least 25 years my senior. To say the least, I have a hard time relating to people my age. I'm in my late 20s. Any advice for how I can view my peers with grace and humble myself to relate to them even when I don't want to? <laughs> I'm trying to think why you're asking me that question. Well, um, you, work, you, work, you work with a lot of younger okay. people. Oh, I see. I thought it was because I couldn't relate to my peers. <laughs> <laughs> that too, pal. Uh, yeah, you know, it sounds like the person. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's it's a it's a difficult question, and I, I will say among um, my young people that there tends to be if there's thirty in a classroom, I bet there's probably three or four that could say this very sort of thing. They kind of an old soul. I don't want to be too cliche with that, but but they tend to be beyond their years just a little bit, and. Uh, I think what's uh, odd, actually, is that from the scope of human history, that people tend to only uh, run in circles that that share an affinity, and especially an age affinity. And what I mean by that is that we we tend to think we have to herd together by maybe five-year groupings or something. But from the perspective of world history, that simply isn't true. People lived multi-generationally, and it wasn't odd at all to be in as significant of a relationship with your parents and grandparents as it might be with your peers. Uh, I think this is the outlier that we live in now. So it, it, it is challenging, and I can understand why it might be frustrating because it's also really nice to have people your own age that tend to be sort of dealing with similar circumstances and maybe different things in, in, a, in a particular stage of life. So I can understand the frustration of that. But, you know, there's no easy answer for somebody that doesn't feel like they fit in with their given peer group to suddenly be able to fit in with their given peer group uh, unless it's going to cost them somehow uh, some of themselves, and and they can kind of chameleon their way into that group a bit and, and play the game of pretend and uh, and and fit in and blend in. But I would just better encourage that person to go ahead and and seek out those relationships that are meaningful and sense and, and they they tend to be where God might be leading them. It's not again. I just encourage them. It's not weird from a perspective of world history to have multi generational relationships. What is weird from that perspective is to only be running in the same affinity groups. Great answer, Peter. This vacation of yours is not slowing you down at all. <laughs> what? It's pretty nice and sunny up here, so, you know, good spirits. And, and I'm worried about that survey. I'm running third to, to Tom. Based yeah, you on definitely what are. I've seen so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Vote for me. Anybody else have a comment on that? I thought Peter really covered it nicely. Yeah. I think he did, too. And I, I guess I would, you know, not much to add other than the fact, I think, just giving yourself the permission that it's okay to have your closest relationships with somebody that, that are of a different generation. And but perhaps that person might be surprised by somebody else that the Lord brings into their life that is of their same generation, but also is of kind of that old soul nature, or the Lord might bring someone into their life that, that is significantly younger than them. And they were that, ver- it was that version of themselves, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, that type of thing, where they're, they're going to be able to relate to and reciprocate that same relationship that that person's been, a, been you know, greatly blessed by. Um, in their current life so but isn't it great um, that this person's best friends are his parents and his grandparents yeah, Some, something, yeah. something's very that's good fantastic. about that that's rare it's awesome yeah. that's really yeah. rare mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. all right here's a, a remark from a question and a remark from a listener that's quite beautiful um how have you seen the power of prayer in action that was the question and the comment was and how can the listeners pray for each of you how beautiful is that nice isn't that, isn't wow. lovely so who wants to jump into uh, how have you seen the power of prayer in action? 
Mm. It's such a big question. Um, I Yeah. You know what? For me, honestly, I, I have seen it, especially during like, you know, this COVID season and global pandemic, cultural pandemic, all these layers of crisis on top of one another. For me, I've seen it just show up in the very mundane, almost ordinary ways. And just, and, and usually while I've had some really profound moments of just being alone with the Lord and nobody else around, it, it tends to show up when I'm almost catching me by surprise and uh, just the Lord's presence, you know, awakening me to see a moment, you know, um, what, whether it's with my wife or with my kids or with a friend or in the midst of a conversation. Um, I've really, yeah, I, I've really seen the power of prayer um, and the way that I can commune with God in the ordinary, in the mundane, and, and have my heart just completely set on fire or my affection soaring in the midst of while I'm doing dishes or changing a dirty diaper. And it sounds so weird, but I've seen the, just the Lord meet me in some of those moments. And so I think I really appreciate the listeners, um, you know, ask of how they can be praying for us. And I I just want that to continue, (laughs) you know, into the season as we head into the fall and and students are back on campus and things are going to tend to get, get busier that I wouldn't miss those small little moments where the Lord just touches my heart in a really personal and significant way. I love it when God does kind of a little miracle to say, I'm up here. And not that this happens much, but Mm. I remember years ago, I'm walking up the stairs in my townhouse, and I I just prayed for Whitney Houston. I don't know that I'd ever done that in my life. The next morning, she was dead. Now, you know, to me, that's God saying hi. You know, that just, Mm. he leads you to do something, and then something happens where that was the Lord that did that. And I love it when he does that. So often, the Lord calls us to pray when we don't see the outcome. Yes. We're still to pray. And I guess I've learned how to do that. My experience, it's interesting. I worked a lot with alcoholics over the years. Gotten them through AA, gotten them through, you know, the Christian, all this stuff and the groups. And, and it's been good. But so many of them went back into alcoholism. You'd see this over and over. And I remember with several alcoholics saying to them, I will pray that Jesus will somehow speak to your heart directly if you're willing to hear his voice. Number one guy saying, if he speaks to me, I'll quit drinking. That night, Jesus spoke to him um, directly to his heart. He quit drinking, and for the next 10 years, he was sober, uh, literally until the day he died. He was an older gentleman. I just saw that again with a young man who had been into alcohol for 15 years. Same thing, in the hospital. The doctor saying, you're not going to live long. And I said to him, either you've got to get serious with Jesus or you've got to do something else. How about if I pray with you right now that Jesus speaks to your heart? And in his case, Jesus appeared to him that night, and he hasn't drank in the last five years. So there are sometimes the Lord does that. There are sometimes I pray, and I see nothing happen as a result. The point is, um, my call, I believe, is to pray. And I ask people to pray for me because I haven't learned enough yet. I'm still learning about Jesus and about his will. Good answer, yeah. Tom Parrish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those are, yeah. yeah, no, right at the same alley. I just, going back a little bit to the poor in spirit thing we talked about earlier in the show, too, I can think of a few times in my life where I just, I ask God to, uh, you know, could he change a few things in my life that were unhealthy patterns and, and uh, maybe ways of relating to people? And boy, it, uh, those answers to prayer almost always come through a shift of circumstances at some, mm-hmm. uh, in some way that become trials and tribulations in life. And, um, so I, I don't like I don't want to readily pray that kind of prayer because it's almost always through suffering and trial that things begin to shift. But I'm amazed at how quickly 
things have happened in my life from a circumstantial basis after I have prayed, you know, just break me or change me in these areas. And then those circumstances come along to do just that. And I do appreciate the idea that the listeners, you know, how could they pray and, and hear from the other guys too. I just think for wisdom in these times, uh, I know for me as I teach young people, and there's so many different claims to what is true and what is right and what will be peaceful and where we should go as a society. And, and some of those claims are quite troubling. And so how do we how do we have wisdom to really invite people into the peace of the kingdom that will cut through, I think, so much of the baloney of our age? Mm-hmm. Great, uh, great comment, Peter. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, that wraps up our time together. You know, last week I think we did the uh, extended version, but we're not doing it today, but maybe next week we'll do extended version again. You Sounds good. good. Everyone yep. good with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's okay. great to be with you all. Thank good. you, Bill. Yeah. Thank you so much, Justin. Peter, travel safely. Look forward to seeing you next week. And gentlemen, thank you for being here. And thanks for all the great uh, questions and comments. Uh, uh, a listener said, it's crystal clear now what porn spirit means to me. Thank you. Isn't that wow. nice? That's wow. just beautiful. That was a question that came up earlier on the show. All right, we're going to take a little break. That wraps up Hour 1. Hour 2, Dr. Andy Scottinga is going to be with us. He's a psychologist. And when do I not want to talk to a psychologist? I always want to talk to a psychologist. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.